Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. Anyone who travelled in Western Europe in the years before the outbreak of the Second World War was aware of a tangible atmosphere. Everyone knew that war was inevitable and expected that it might result in the entire ruin of the civilization they knew, the utter destruction of great cities, and the death of vast numbers by gas attack, as well as by high explosive. The atmosphere in France was one of fatalistic gloom. The economy was strike-ridden, and the people just didn't want to think about the future. In Germany you got the impression of a vast, disciplined people pressing outwards on their frontiers, threatening at any moment to overflow into the neighbouring countries. No day passed but you witnessed uniformed men and women, and even children, marching and singing martial airs. Like everyone else on the pavements, you stepped to the side of the curb and raised your right arm as the swastika banner was carried past. If you didn't, you were likely to be pushed roughly into a corner and asked why you didn't. I spent a month in Rome in March-April 1939, that is, five months before war finally broke out. I was staying with that very hospitable man, an old friend, Dennis Devlin, who was not only a very good poet, but was also the secretary of the Irish Embassy to Italy. War readiness was not so obvious in Italy as in Germany, but you couldn't but notice all the same the armed soldiers who joined the train at the Italian frontier and paraded the corridors with rifles slung from their shoulders, glancing into every carriage as they passed. In Rome itself, sitting in the Borghese gardens, I timed a park policeman with a revolver at his hip, who passed me on his bicycle once every five minutes, having cycled down every path in the meantime and back again to resume his circuit. There were certain bars frequented by the press correspondents of the great world newspapers and by the junior staff of the embassies, and there was a give and take of minor political information between them. Every Friday, Dennis Devlin and his minister carefully sealed the Irish diplomatic bag and entrusted it to the Italian post office, knowing well that it would be opened an hour later by the Italian political police. They wouldn't have been very much good unless they could forge a diplomatic seal. In Rome, the atmosphere was one of expectation. The place was full of German tourists, and the conversation all the time was of political happenings. And then came the news of the Italian invasion of Albania and the proclamation of King Zog to his people to defend every inch of Albanian soil while he made his escape out the far side of the country with the national treasury on 38 bullock carts. A real bandits get away, the press correspondent said. Hermann Göring visited Rome, but Dennis and I didn't see why we should honour him with our presence among the crowds gathered to stare and cheer at the railway station. Some nights later, we wandered into the Piazza Venezia, where a big crowd had gathered shouting, Duce, Duce. Mussolini was on the balcony of the palace, addressing the people with rousing words. It was too depressing to stay. One felt that war was very near now, and Dennis rather felt that I should return home rather than risk internment for the duration, because at that time it was very doubtful if an Irish declaration of neutrality would be accepted by either combatant but I was unwilling to go. The Europe which one knew seemed on the brink of destruction, and I wanted to see what I could of it before the catastrophe. 
We wandered off that night away from Mussolini's oratory, and while drinking a glass of wine in a restaurant, were joined by a third commercial attaché from the British Embassy, so depressed by the world's situation that he had already consumed a good deal more wine than was good for him. He was very silent, too stricken to say much, but when Dennis had the bright idea of going to the Trevi Fountain, where he undertook to read aloud Yeats's last poem, the commercial attaché came uncertainly after us. The Trevi Fountain is a good place to listen to great poetry, even though sitting on the surround you get splashed by water from time to time, dependent on the breeze. I don't know what the thoughts of the third commercial attaché were, properly, that all the Irish were mad. But to me, Yeats's noble, sounding words were a declaration of the invincibility of the human spirit at a time when, beneath our feet, Earth's very foundations had begun to crumble. We'll meet again Don't know where Don't know when But I know we'll meet again Some sunny day Just like you always No wonder the novelist Kate O'Brien became exasperated with people who asked her, why Canterbury? When she elected to live there in the 1960s and eventually to die there. One might as well ask, why Venice or why Delft or why any other place that's not only physically beautiful, but securely anchored in its own traditions and used over many centuries to assimilating the stranger. Canterbury became home to saint and scholar, poet and pilgrim, mason and master builder from soon after Roman times, and when fire destroyed the great bell tower of the cathedral four years after St Thomas Becket was murdered, it was a French architect, William of Saint, who was appointed to supervise the restoration. The work was almost finished when a giant scaffold fell on the poor man and he died of his injuries. One of the places that fascinated me most when I spent about seven hours or so wandering around Canterbury on the 1st of December last was the 14th century West Gate with its massive twin towers, last remaining of the ancient city gates and sufficiently dominating the skyline to be the first indication to tired travellers on the Pilgrim's Way from London that their journey might be almost over when in fact they had still many miles to walk or ride. You can't look at the great towers today without imagining the people who passed beneath them when the gates creaked open. And because poets speak louder than historians, these people will always be for us the knight and the wife of Bath, the pardoner and the Franklin and the monk and the miller and all the rest of Chaucer's immortal company. A short walk and you can see where poorer pilgrims were given free board and lodgings at the Eastbridge Hospital of St Thomas of Canterbury, which has been restored to its last medieval cellar. Beneath the vaulted ceiling, rushes were strewn on the floor for beds, and breakfast in the refectory was a short flight of steps away. All over Canterbury, you can still stay, mind you, in the same inns and taverns where the better-heeled pilgrims stayed. The city was bombed in 1942, 
and some of these ancient houses had to be rebuilt, but the cathedral was hardly touched. When you walk into the close under the old palace gate, you are entering a strangely peaceful haven, which was only once violated in more than a thousand years. That was on the 29th of December, 1170, when Becket was savagely murdered by four knights who plotted his death in the cellars of number 17 Palace Street, just down the road. The Archbishop ordered the doors to be opened to them and was struck down on the stone flags of his own cathedral, where there's a modern memorial to him today, a sculptor's strong abstraction of thrusting swords with bloody tips to them, a menacing reminder of murder in the cathedral. The bones of Thomas Becket are several elevations away in this most complex of English Gothic churches. It's as if you walk a private pilgrim's way to paradise inside it, always ascending from one level to another, until eventually, it's best to take an hour at least on the journey where there's so much to look at, you stand under the miracle of the great bell tower above the high altar. When you look up, you are quite as much in another world as in Chartres or Rouen, because looking up into Bell Harry, your eyes are travelling up higher than the cliffs of Moher into an intricate fan vault of stonework like very fine lace, unimaginably beautiful when filled with a wintry sunset. The same fading light comes through a screen of late 12th century glass, a truly miraculous survivor of many wars and a thing of astounding beauty. You don't really want to go away, especially since Bach motets are spiralling up from the nave, played and sung by very young performers rehearsing for a concert that evening. Eventually the silence that seemed hardly to be broken by those remote voices, but merely underlined by them, was indeed shattered by a clutter of choir boys with betjeman faces being shepherded together by a poor harassed choirmaster to be rehearsed in some anteroom or other for Christmas. They tripped one another up accidentally on purpose, like boys the world over, and two or three of them lagged behind, noisily scuffling. But in starched white linen ruffs, they'd no doubt look celestial in a few weeks' time, and sound as ethereal under Bell Harry's tower as our own choir boys in St. Patrick's. In the end, it was almost dark in the cobbled streets when I emerged with a companion and made for an inn near the house where Sir Thomas More's daughter Margaret once lived at the West Gate. I'd intended, before it got dark, to go and look for Kate O'Brien's grave and pay my respects to a brilliantly gifted, yet strangely undervalued Irish novelist who made her home here. But that's for another time. Even before I'd ever explored Kate's selected haven, I'd never said, why Canterbury? still less on the way back to London by train that winter's night. I always walked boldly under ladders, and to observe fellow pedestrians stepping carefully around them into the gutter 
thereby risking instant demolition by speeding motor car or lorry, gave me a feeling of smug pride. Until one day in Parliament Street, a seven-pound hammer missed my head by inches and crashed onto the pavement at my feet. I still walk boldly under ladders, but not without first taking the precaution of glancing upwards to assess the prospect of injury or extinction. It is strange how many people cling to these old beliefs, even in this enlightened age. Superstition is especially rife among people in the world of entertainment, which of course includes professional footballers. There are many of them who insist on coming onto the field in a particular place in the line, second or seventh or very often last. But the one circumstance calculated to plunge a whole team into the depths of foreboding is if a corpse happens to be travelling on the same train when they are en route to an away match. The theatre, of course, is a hotbed of superstition. And while most actors have one or two little idiosyncrasies which they practice half seriously, there is one subject which is almost universally feared. Yes, I mean feared throughout the profession. The play Macbeth. Nearly every actor or actress will stop you or leave the company if you quote from this play in pub or party. Many will not even mention its title and refer to it always as the Scottish play. Some refuse to play in it even. Even if it means giving up a lucrative engagement they can ill afford to lose. The fact is that the play has a long history of physical disaster which one cannot readily ignore. In my time I have known of two nasty injuries and one death at the Coliseum Oldham due to accidents on stage during a performance of Macbeth. A theory has been put forward to account for this chain of events and I will leave you to make what you will of it. It is said that Shakespeare used actual incantations which had been practiced by real witches for the lines he put into the mouths of his three weird sisters and that the evil engendered by these spells has stayed with the play ever since. In my young days, when I was putting on my first review, I engaged as comedian one Billy Rhodes. Billy was the king of superstitions. He indulged himself in the lot. This was a very modest affair, this review, carrying about 14 people and playing the number three dates. I had called it rather grandly, Hello, Hollywood. During a break in rehearsals in Liverpool, Billy Rhodes and I strolled round to the scenic stores where the sets were being painted. On the frame were the front tabs, a pair of large canvas curtains decoratively designed, which are drawn back and forth across the front of the stage and in front of which comedians or accordion players or what have you fill the five or six minutes while the big scenes are changed behind them. This particular set of tabs I was rather proud of. I had designed two richly plumaged peacocks whose beaks faced each other where the tabs joined and whose huge tails, not erect, swept across the lower half of the curtains towards the wings, all on a dove grey background. When we arrived, the scenic artist had sketched in the figures of the birds 
and had started painting in a rich purple those round parts of the tail feathers which provide the colour. Billy Rhodes gazed at the tabs, his eyes bulged, his fat red cheeks blanched. Peacocks, he gasped. Peacocks! Don't you know they're the unluckiest things in the theatre? Last time I worked with peacock's feathers on the stage, the theatre burned down. To make it short, he flatly refused to open if my design remained. A quick consultation with the painter and the splendid birds were readily transformed into two bunches of grapes, with a few scattered peaches and bananas at stage level to make up a pattern. And the comic's superstitious conscience was appeased. We opened in due course at the Cooperative Hall, Oswald Twistle, in thick fog which stayed with us all the week and caused a financial disaster. The following Monday we were at the Palace Theatre, Woolly Bridge, near Glossop. After a bad opening, by Wednesday the business was beginning to pick up, and on Thursday, in the middle of the night, the building was gutted by fire. I wish... I had stuck to my peacocks. The first time I saw Siobhan McKenna offstage was in an antique shop, a long, narrow and dusty shop, crowded with furniture and china that to my uneducated eye had seen better days. I was on my knees examining a button chair when I heard voices. What really caught my attention was the hidden laughter and resonance of the woman's voice. She came out from the back of the shop, clutching a vase and talking back over her shoulder. It was Siobhan McKenna, resplendent in a topaz-coloured cape, with her burnished hair tumbling over her shoulders and a smudge of dirt on her left cheek. She was followed by a small man with a narrow face and a wrinkled suit. She wanted the vase for £10. He was holding out for £30. The vase was grimy, but it was a graceful urn shape with a lid and two handles. In the end, he agreed to her price in a grumpy way. She rewarded him with a smile, a ten-pound note from her pocket, and made a grand exit. About two weeks later, I was assigned to interview Siobhan McKenna. Her sitting room, with its golden carpet, plushy chintz sofas, and occasional furniture, had the atmosphere we were trying to create in our own house. The urn, glowing with colour, stood in pride of place on a marquetry table. I had a framework for the interview but soon realised that her off-the-cuff reminiscences were far more interesting than analysing her achievement. The play she most closely identified with was George Bernard Shaw's St Joan. It wasn't that she'd received an Evening Standard Award for her portrayal of the title role that she remembered, but her four-year-old son Dunnicus' reaction. 
When he came backstage after a matinee performance, he told her he was glad she'd come back. There had always been controversy as to whether Shaw should have ended the play at scene six, but Siobhan McKenna considered her son's reaction a valid reason for keeping the epilogue. Danica then asked her if she had really been burned. She found that hard to answer, but feeling truth was the best policy, she told him that Joan was burned. He accepted that unquestioningly. She rambled off then about children's instinctive acquiescence to truth and how it is adults that force them into deceit and the conditioning fear that makes them tell lies. It was probably talking about her son's childhood that brought her back to her own. One of her earliest cameos was getting Eamon de Valera's autograph. She'd gone with her father to hear him speak and was so fascinated by what she later recognised as his personal charisma that she pushed her way through the crowds. She ended up in front of a man who to her five-year-old eyes seemed 12 feet tall in an enormously long black coat. Without speaking, she held out a piece of paper. He found a pen in his pocket and wrote his name. When she thanked him in Irish, he smiled. Siobhan McKenna's childhood was one of golden memories. She remembered her mother as a somewhat colettish figure, always calling to her sister Nancy and herself. Her father, professor of mathematical physics at Galway University, was donnish, but warmly humorsome. When the interview finished and we were having tea, I found myself telling her about the circumstances in which I'd seen her a few weeks earlier. She gave a delighted grin, waved her hand around the room and told me that the nicest pieces she had were from that particular shop. To her, the owner was that rare breed of Dublin character who garnered his stock lovingly, bargained for enjoyment and sold only to people who appreciated it. That wonderful actor and by the ship and make of him fine gentleman, Leslie Howard, sometime in the 1940s and not too long before his tragic death in an airplane crash, was here in Ireland and visited Killarney. And when asked what he thought of the lakes and fells, emerald isles and winding bays, mountain paths and woodland dales, he said they were wonderful, which indeed they are. At the same interview he was asked what he thought of the Gardaí, and he said that the Gardaí were also wonderful. Now, that was not without deliberate humour, for that was what visitors to London always said when they were asked what they thought about London bobbies. Leslie Howard did not mean that Killarney was wonderful the way the guards were, or that the guards were wonderful the way Killarney is. And I am reminded that I once knew a detective, a good friend of mine, who came from, I won't say where, but it was not Killarney. And he used to say, for the fun of it, I come from, I won't say where, where the fleas ate the man. 
And a famous poet from Barcelona once told me that in his city, it was a great compliment to say to a senorita, you are more beautiful than Burgos Cathedral, you are more wonderful than the Pope. Uh, but in the year in which Leslie Hard found the Garthi in Killarney equally wonderful, I was rooting around Killarney, pursuing not the ghost of Brendan's mast, as the poet said, but the ghost of the poet, Aegon O'Rahilly, who was much concerned with the place, and who, as far as I know, was the first person, after perhaps the Elizabethan poet, Edmund Spencer, properly to praise the beauty of those lakes and mountains. And who could ever walk by Tork Waterfall without remembering the bitter lines of the poet crying out that no sound could be heard as he wept on the wintry roads but the scream of the hog which cannot be wounded with sticking. So that searching forty years ago or so for the ghost of the poet, I moved, you might say, between the commercial travellers playing billiards in the Glebe Hotel, where Jimmy O'Donoghue then guarded the door, to the gloomy fastness of Glen Flesk and the dark ruin of the fortress of O'Donoghue of the Glen. From the office of the agent of the Kenmare Estate, then a Mr. Rolston, and like myself, an Ulsterman, believe it or not, to the farm of Charles O'Leary of Gunneve Gilia, or Guinea who was the last native speaker in the home parish of Father Dunin, and to Muckross, where the poet saw the planter's son trapped and killed in the forked branch of a tree, and prayed or cursed that every tree in Ireland should bear such fruit. And out to see that amazing man, the late Joseph O'Connor of Fossa, who was afterwards to write a novel, The Norway Man, and a volume of memories, sketches and stories, hostages to fortune, which contained one of those isolated masterpieces, the short story called The Chicopee Reel. Joe had folklore about the last of the family of Murthock Griffin of Hedford, land agent to Kinmare in the time of Aegon, who was also cursed by the poet in as cunningly wicked a piece of obscenity as has ever been written in Ireland. So there was I, forty golden years ago, meditating in the grand style, on the crowds out of the past and the present that confused me, when I went searching for the spirit of the 18th century poet, the people of the place and of Kerry and Cork and all Ireland, the visitors come to look at the scenery or play golf or fish, the shawled women in the queue outside the cinema, remember it was 40 years ago, the Jarvies with the ancient jokes. Then Alfred Lord Tennyson sat down to write his poem and the bugles obediently blew and the elder Pugin designed a great cathedral and the author of the Waverley novels paid his compliments to the beauties of the upper lake and Arthur Young talked of the prodigious woods and the immensity of the mountains and Mr Thackeray, the eminent novelist, said we should look at these wonderful things leisurely and thoughtfully and even then blessed is he who understands them. And William Wordsworth said, and heavens knows he was the greatest living authority, that Killarney and its surroundings added up to the most beautiful spot in the British Isles, and Lord Macaulay talked grandly about how the Arbutus throve better there than on the sunny shores of Calabria, and Charles James Fox went swimming around the Devil's Punch Bowl, and the late Queen herself said that Killarney was paradise. Then a friend of mine from Killarney points out to me that the place was also visited and praised by one of my favourite authors, and in these words, Let the tourist who knows not Killarney leave Switzerland for once in a way and spend some portion of his holiday among these gentle hills. That was from Miss M. E. Braddon, who at the age of 21, I believe, wrote Lady Audley's Secret. 
and became in Victorian times what we now call a bestseller, and went on to write a lot more, and who in fact wrote a very good prose, even if she was somewhat given to lush sentiment and high melodrama. As a matter of curiosity, Lady Audley's Secret was the first novel George Moore ever read or was impressed by. She got to him before Zola or the brothers Goncourt or Walter Pater, with what results we all well know. About Miss Braddon I could talk for a long time, but I'm remembering now that the year after I pursued the ghost of the poet, I met for the first time Seamus the Fuitia and discovered the real Killarney. The one he had grown up in and loved and was to celebrate to the day of his death. You could say that his concern was less with the lakes than with the lanes, less with the bugle and the boatmen than with the craftsmen whose craft had been inherited, stonecutters, coopers, carpenters at Alii Aliorum. The centre of the world that Seamus revealed in his stories, you can see the collection published, alas posthumously by Poolbeg Press, under the title The More We Are Together. The centre of that world was not on the lake with the tourists, but around the great cathedral, and I quote from one of the stories. The great organ broke like a storm of singing winds against the grey-blue granite of the walls, yet even the high-hidden inches that never would know the eye of man were a credit to the skill and care of our ghosts who built it. Ermagualam shir kondrodi vora pikim grots meg ke kaspiarami gamarkyo ak pokan kronese her willa I met Seamus Murphy for the first time soon after he'd returned from Paris and established his workshop studio in the yard of Sonny Murphy's pub, The Northern Star, in Blackpool. I saw him for the last time after a lapse of many years for two nights a fortnight before he died. More than anyone I have known, more than my own relations, Seamus entered into my life. He became a part of it despite long periods when I didn't see him. Physical presence was not necessary for my constant awareness of him. His studio in Blackpool was a salon of Cork, but a strictly masculine salon. It was a gathering place for all sorts and conditions of men. It was a focus point for a score of aspects of the vivid, zestful life of Cork in those days. The news more particularly the unwritten news, the news between the print, was discussed, enlarged, undisputed. Personalities and motives were ruthlessly examined. Old history was retailed. Old and new scandals were given an airing. You never knew who'd turn up or who you'd find there. Billy Dwyer, the industrialist, the then Mechanus of Cork, and a staunch supporter of Seamus spent a lot of his time there. Almost everyone visiting Cork, actors, artists, writers, politicians, hurling heroes, greyhound breeders, old stonies, monster fusilier pensioners focused on the studio. Seamus was very seldom alone. In the midst of whatever was going on, Seamus was the centre of the group of idlers, whistling and riding, tapping and hammering. 
nothing passed him by. Often with a twinkle in his eye, he'd pause for a moment to drop in a wry comment, to ask a provocative question, to keep the pot boiling. Someone would brew tea, or someone was in funds, and we might repair to the conveniently adjacent pub, surely the most stark, comfortless establishment in the whole of Ireland, but where, nevertheless, there was so often the sport of cork. Seamus and I were, by background, training, temperament and interest, poles apart. But it was Seamus who, unconsciously, yet sometimes with a direct challenge or an example, taught me, influenced me. He taught me how little I knew about human beings and how intolerant I was towards them. To Seamus, all human beings were, one way or another, of interest. All, no matter who they were, in that yard in Blackpool, were on level terms, and all were, under the influence of Seamus, themselves and real. For Seamus, working away, was always himself so completely real, warm, tender, open, compassionate, understanding and zestful. He was also willful and stubborn at times too, for he was human. Of course I was interested in his craft, and in this direction he taught me much. He conveyed, communicated, initiated me into the craftsman's attitude towards his way of living. I still see raw stone, work stone, or a finished building with the added vision which Seamus gave to me. Others have written and spoken about his work and his achievement. The work remains in the most durable form of all materials as a memento to the artist and to the craftsman. But it was the man behind the work which always interested in me more, which still interests me and which will interest me while I have memory. As a result of my knowing of Seamus, I measure a man much more in the terms of what would be Seamus's appraisal than those of my original self. I wonder what Seamus might think of him. Would he pass his shrewd scrutiny, or would he be assessed and dismissed for his pretentiousness and unreality? Seamus gave me a sure measure, which I am beholden. No man is an island. We are all affected and influenced by those whom we meet. To lesser or greater extent, we weave others into the fabric of our lives. While I live, some of Seamus Murphy continues to live in me, and that the better part. On this morning's programme, a selection from the early years of Sunday Miscellany, we heard Rome on the Eve of World War II by Mervyn Wall, first broadcast in 1976. Why Canterbury by Val Mulkerns, first broadcast in 1989. Walking Under Ladders by Dominic Roach, first broadcast in 1970. A Meeting with Siobhan McKenna by Patricia O'Reilly, first broadcast in 1989. Visitors to Killarney by Benedict Kiley from 1982. And On Seamus Murphy by Eric Cross from 1976. The music was We'll Meet Again by Vera Lynn. Prelude number 11 in B major by Chopin, performed by Sviatoslav Richter. 
Saraband from the Consort of Flower Parts by Matthew Locke, performed by Hesperian 20. The third movement from the St. Joan Suite, composed by John Folds and played by the BBC Concert Orchestra. And on Puck Erbwilla, sung by the Clancy Brothers with Tommy Makem. This morning's programme was produced by Lorcan Clancy. The series producer is Sarah Binchy. To listen back to this morning's programme, go to the RTE radio player or the programme website rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday Miscellany. You can also follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter and all the usual podcast platforms. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.